Happy New Year and welcome back to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your faithful host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And if you've just discovered our program, welcome. If you're a regular listener, Hey, we're excited to have you back. So, if you joined us last month, you heard me announce that we will be honoring the 100th anniversary of the German Expressionism horror classic Nosferatu this month. But we've actually decided to shelve that commemoration for later this year because we had overlooked an important milestone marked in late 2021, the 20th anniversary of the release of The Fellowship of the Ring which first hit American theaters in wide release on December 19, 2001. So this month, we'll be celebrating that birthday in proper fashion, and we've lined up a fantastic guest to join us in the revelry. It's Brian Sibley, a British author and journalist known primarily for his work writing BBC radio dramas, like the renowned adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. Brian is also the author of many making-of books, including The Lord of the Rings Official Movie Guide, and he also wrote the biography Peter Jackson, A Filmmaker's Journey. Together we'll explore why The Fellowship of the Ring is worthy of celebration all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, ways it has stood the test of time, and what we can learn from this fantasy masterwork two decades on. Before we take the scenic route through Middle-earth, however, let's get the proper context on this month's featured film, by turning to the trusty Wikipedia machine. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring is a 2001 epic fantasy adventure film directed by Peter Jackson based on the 1954 novel, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first volume of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The film is the first installment in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was produced by Barry M. Osborne, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Tim Sanders, and written by Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Jackson. The film features an ensemble cast including Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Rhys-Davies, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Christopher Lee, Hugo Weaving, Sean Bean, Ian Holm, and Andy Serkis. It was followed in 2002 by The Two Towers and in 2003 by The Return of the King. Set in Middle-earth, the story tells of the Dark Lord Sauron, who seeks the One Ring, which contains part of his soul, in order to return to power. The ring has found its way to the young hobbit Frodo Baggins. The fate of Middle-earth hangs in the balance as Frodo and eight companions, who form the Fellowship of the Ring, begin their journey to Mount Doom in the land of Mordor, the only place where the ring can be destroyed. The Fellowship of the Ring was co-financed and distributed by American studio New Line Cinema, but filmed and edited entirely in Jackson's native New Zealand, concurrently with the other two parts of the trilogy. It premiered on December 10, 2001 at the Odeon Leicester Square in London and was theatrically released worldwide on December 19, 2001. 
The film was acclaimed by critics and fans alike, who considered it to be a landmark in filmmaking and an achievement in the fantasy film genre. It received praise for its visual effects, performances, Jackson's direction, screenplay, and faithfulness to the source material. The Fellowship of the Ring grossed $880 million worldwide in its initial release, making it the second highest grossing film of 2001 and the fifth highest grossing movie at the time of its release. Fellowship, like its successors, is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential movies ever made. The film received numerous accolades. At the 74th Academy Awards, for example, it was nominated for 13 awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for McKellen, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Song for May It Be, and Best Sound, ultimately winning four awards for Best Cinematography, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, and Best Visual Effects. In 2021, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The Fellowship of the Ring ranked 50th in the American Film Institute's 2007 list of the 100 Greatest American Movies of All Time. Today, the film holds a 92% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, earning an average critical score of 8.2 out of 10. Let's take a moment and feast our ears on the film's original theatrical trailer. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries, it has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it, seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? The weapon of the enemy is a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do, but I'm afraid to do it. One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. There's something down there. Precious. Okay, so there's a key moment in Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo tells Gandalf he wishes the ring had never been found or come to him. Likewise, if Fellowship remains a yet-to-be-watched film for you, 
you're going to wish you had screened it before proceeding with this episode. That's because Brian and I will be traveling through spoiler land ahead, and we certainly don't want to ruin the surprises in store for you. So do us a solid, hit pause right now, and go see what all the Fellowship fuss was about. All right, everybody ready? Let's begin the journey. Let's say hello to Brian Sibley, an English writer and journalist famous for authoring countless hours of radio drama, including famous BBC adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. He's also written several making-of books, including The Lord of the Rings Official Movie Guide and similar works for the Harry Potter series and The Hobbit trilogies. With his knowledge of and passion for the Tolkien universe, I knew Brian would be the ideal guest for this month's episode, and I'm so thrilled he said yes to my request. Brian, welcome to Cineversary and our celebration of the 20th birthday of the Fellowship of the Ring film. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a delight and a pleasure to be with you. Oh, feeling is mutual, sir. I have to tell you, Brian, that thanks to your excellent work, along with co-writer Michael Bakewell, the BBC Lord of the Rings radio series, well, it remains my all-time favorite radio dramatization. That's really kind. Believe me, I am a, I'm just a worshiper of that series. And in fact, I'm including vintage radio dramas in that assessment of mine, calling this my favorite radio series. Because, Brian, I'm a huge fan of old-time radio. Me too. You know, shows like too. Suspense, Jack Benny, you know, Inner Sanctum, Lights Out, things like that. And I've probably listened to your Lord of the Rings adaptation more than 20 times over the years. And it continues to entrance me with, you know, its writing, the voice acting, the sound effects. Uh, you think about the music, the o- just the overall entertainment value. It's so, so good. Okay, so how did you get involved in writing both, you know, that radio series and later, the Lord of the Rings official movie guide that was published uh, 20 years ago. There's another anniversary. So what can you share about those experiences, and, and how did they help you better appreciate the whole Middle-earth mythology as well as Tolkien's talents? Well, they are linked, Eric, those two events, because uh, I was a huge fan of Tolkien's books. I read The Hobbit when I was uh, quite a young child. I was at school, but I found it very difficult. I'm a very slow reader still now. I was a late reader and I I struggle particularly with big, thick books. Back then to me, uh, a huge paperback representing those three volumes of The Lord of the Rings uh, was quite a challenge for me. And I found it very difficult to get into it. And, it, and in truth, uh, I only really finally read it when I was confined to hospital with a, a duodenal ulcer. And, and I had a month in hospital bed rest. And uh, I took the book with me. I thought, I am actually going to get into this book. And of mm. course, once I was like two, three chapters in, um, it was unputdownable. And I re- I mean, I was 21 at the time. And I remember asking my parents to bring me in a, a, a torch so that I could read under the bedclothes at night, you know, after lights <laughs> out in the hospital. Sure. So um, I had this very strong affection for, the, for all his books. And um, at one point, I wrote a letter to Tolkien. And I wanted, by this time, I, I had all the books in hardback. Uh, but I thought it was a bit, it was going to cost me a lot of money to send the three volumes of The Lord of the rings and ask him to sign them i i should have done anyway but i didn't (laughs) so i I chose tom bombadil the adventures of tom bombadil which of course is quite a slim volume of poems uh and wrote him a fan letter quite embarrassed to think actually that i I remember writing bits of it in elvish which i obviously copied out of the book (laughs) you're old school yeah yeah (laughs) i don't know whether i expected an answer or not you do when you're a a young person you write to people you assume that they will write back so i guess i probably did 
uh, I did get the book back with a letter from his secretary saying that he had signed it for me, which he had done. Oh, very nice. On the title page and had also corrected a, a miss, a typo that was in the text. Uh, I started writing works for the BBC, work for the BBC, mostly features, documentary type things. Uh, but I did a dramatization of, of a book by James Thurber called The Wonderful O. I'm, you, you mentioned Jack Benny, and I'm a great lover of American radio. And I love Charlie McCarthy, and I love Fred Allen, and, and the, the Benny shows are some of my favorites. And I love all the dramas. Yes. I, I think one of my favorites is Sorry, Wrong Number, which is a, an absolutely pyrotechnic performance, largely of one person in, in the form mm -hmm. of Agnes Moorhead. And uh, so I had a great passion for, for radio, and I grew up listening to radio. And in those days, there was a lot of radio for young people on the BBC. Not now, but mm -hmm. there was then. So I listened to lots of radio plays and adult plays. Um, and I, I loved The Wonderful O, which is one of Thurber's kind of rather crazy parables. And I sent it to the BBC and they accepted the script, which was great. And Mrs Thurber approved the, the version I wrote. Uh, and it got broadcast, but it was 45 minutes. So it was, you know, it wasn't that long. But back in those days, the BBC was very, almost in a way, indulgent to anybody who wrote. They were very, had a very kind of parental attitude towards their writers. Uh, and so I had a letter which was sort of rather charmingly saying, if there's anything else you'd like to dramatize, uh, do let us know. I mean, uh, so I suggested a whole raft of books that I'd quite like to do on radio. Some, turned out had already been done others they didn't think were suitable really as a kind of desperate last resort I said but of course the book I'd really like to do is The Lord of the Rings and I was walking down a corridor and this guy who was in charge of what was called the script unit a man called Richard Imerson happened to come out of his office saw me and pulled me into his office shut the door and, and whispered in a really conspiratorial kind of way, how did you know about the ring? <laughs> Good timing is everything, right? Well, absolutely. I had no idea. He didn't believe me at first. He absolutely believed that some, there was a mole in the BBC who had told me, but they were negotiating to get the rights to a radio version. I had only dramatized one 45-minute play, and here we were talking about uh, 26 half-hour episodes, uh, you know, half a year of broadcasting. Wow, that's incredible. The the plan was, I mean, they took a very wise decision of, of joining me up, linking me up with Michael Bakewell, and we, mm -hmm. each of us, wrote 13 of the episodes each. Uh, Michael was about the most established person I could possibly have worked alongside, although we wrote our own episodes independently of each other, uh, because he had been a producer, a writer, a director, and he had dramatised War and Peace for the BBC some years before. So he absolutely knew what he was doing. But for me, it was... I mean, it was, you know, it was an enormous kickstart to my career. It oh, gave man. me the, the opportunity to do other things. Peter Jackson, as a young man, had had the cassette versions of the radio serial. Ah. And so he mm -hmm. knew that and listened. To it. And indeed, indeed, when they cast the film, anybody who hadn't actually read the book were given a set in order to mm -hmm. give them the, the, the bones of the story without having to read the book, which is they could absorb, they could absorb it in just 13 hours. Mm -hmm. So um, it was very fortuitous. And when I'd done some work with Harper Collins, who were the publisher tied into the film merchandising or the publishing side of it, and uh, I had done some books with John Howe, the Tolkien artist, 
of maps of Middle Earth. So when the opportunity came that they asked me if I was interested in doing some books on uh, the making of the films, uh, and I said yes, uh, that of course my name was known to Peter Jackson and he was happy with that. So it was it was extremely fortuitous, really. It was suddenly decided that Peter wanted to write a biography uh, or wanted a biography written. And I was commissioned to do that. So I never got to write a third book about the return of the king because I was up to my eyes in writing a book called Peter Jackson, A Filmmaker's Journey. It is itself a fascinating story of how Peter Jackson ended up making, you know, such a, a hugely expensive and, and wildly ambitious project uh, in the way that he did. Right. What a fantastic journey you've laid out there for us. Yeah, we should get right into the matter at hand, which is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the first movie in the trilogy, Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Now, we are going to talk about the trilogy as a whole. I mean, uh, this will bleed into a bit of uh, Two Towers and uh, Return of the King as far as the films. But the proper celebration is the first film. It is my favorite of the three. It's always been my favorite book of the trilogy. I know that uh, Lord of the Rings has been published as one complete volume, as well as three separate chapters. But yeah, it's always been uh, my favorite part of the story, so to speak. But I want to ask you, when and where did you first see the film, The Fellowship of the Ring, Brian? And why is this movie important to you in any way? Okay, well, my first glimpse of it, we, I had been approved as being somebody who would be writing one of the books about the, the series. Uh, and, and myself and Jane Johnson writing as Jude Fisher, who wrote uh, another series of books called The uh, Visual Guides to Middle-earth. Jane and I went with David Braun, who was one of the publishers of at HarperCollins, to a screening room uh, in London, uh, to see really, I think, I try to remember just how long it would have been, probably no more than maybe 12, 15 minutes, something like that, uh, of footage. And I think we both went with some trepidation. This was sometime in 2020. I mean, it was like top secret. I mean, we had to give, I'm joking, but we had to give kind of DNA samples and you know, fingerprints <laughs> right. and everything. Yeah, submit your firstborn, the whole thing. Uh, absolutely, signed away the world on an NDA. And Jane and I came out, and I think we were both both absolutely stunned, but we were both so swept up and caught up in it, mm -hmm. in, in thinking this is going to work. You know, there were, it was just instinctive. We both went, this is going to be wonderful. When did I see the film in its entirety? Well, the premiere in, in London but uh, in 2021. But in May of 2021, New Line Cinema showed 26 minutes of the film uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, the 15th, mm -hmm. 115th Cannes Film Festival. Were you there? I was there. I was in the Olympia Theatre, which nine years earlier had been where Peter Jackson had premiered Brain Dead, and you couldn't read okay. a more different project. <laughs> and again, I understand the reservations. He's been tasked to, uh, you know, adapt uh, possibly the greatest work of the 20th century. <laughs> and what is the outcome going to be? There are going to be some trepidations. Uh, absolutely. On this occasion, uh, New Line took, I think, the most extraordinary. Uh, but absolutely uh, inspired decision to preview 
the film at the festival. Well, I mean, I remember one commentator wrote um, that uh, that The Lord of the Rings was the best movie at Cannes that isn't in competition because there was only 26 minutes of it. Yeah, it's not even a movie. It's not like a short. But it was was treated as though it was a premiere. Mm. You know, all the the global media were there in that theatre. I have been in many, many film screenings of, of movies for the press. And most press people, the moment the the end titles start running up and out of their seats and gone. Um, But this film, I have never been at a a screening where people who are normally rather, you know, hard-bitten media hacks actually give. It was a whooping, cheering, stomping, uh, applauding audience. Isn't that great when that that happens? It's just, uh, it's infectious. It just takes over the room. It's great. Well, it does. I remember um, Bob Shea of New Line remembering how he had gone down to New Zealand for the first time. He was about to risk $300 million, and of course it ended up more than that in the end, uh, on whether this filmmaker could deliver what he was supposed to deliver. And he said to himself, this is bloody crazy. And I think people did think that in a way. Sure they did. But, but you know, when he introduced the film at Cannes, I think by that time, or the, the, the trailer for it, really, uh, when he introduced that, I think by that time he had little doubt. And I remember him saying mm-hmm. that we were the first audience to see the compilation well when it comes to the premiere itself which i i think pretty much everybody who was there was blown away by it and and particularly like you i i feel a great affection for the fellowship of the ring that's not to say that i don't like and enjoy the other two films but there's something particularly special about the the first film and i think i think it is because what it captures it captures something very special that that's in the Tolkien original, which is when Tolkien was writing it, at the, uh, up until around when the Fellowship sets out from Rivendell, up, almost up to that point, he was still finding his way with the story. And, uh, you know, it's why, for example, both Peter Jackson in the films and uh, myself in the radio version left Tom Bombadil and all that section out of the film and out of the radio mm. version, because it's right. kind of like a... Uh, a kind of sidetrack, you know, uh, it, it's 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 not sure. the same drama as the main thrust of the story. But, but of course, Tolkien was finding his way through it. You know, there's a letter that he wrote to his son, Christopher, when Christopher was was in the uh, in the army uh, in, in the Second World War. And he wrote to Christopher to say something along the lines of Frodo and the other hobbits have arrived at the Prancing Pony and they've met Strider, although I think he, he was called Trotter at that point. They've met this character, uh, and I don't know who he is. And and you know that is so honest and so, amazing. Yeah, right. Tells right. so much about how Tolkien wrote. So there's something about the early part of the book which has its own kind of evolution, and Peter captured that yes. uh, in a very real way. And and of course, what he gave you was very early on this sense of just the beauty and the tranquility and the loveliness of the Shire you know, what it was that these characters would be ready to sacrifice their lives for was for this thing which was so precious to them. And it enabled him to establish Gandalf and Frodo and Bilbo, of course, and Sam Gamgee, and then the other two hobbits. And then when you get Mm -hmm. to to Rivendell, you've got this glorious passage where all these characters start filling in the back history of the ring and their respective races and so on. And so that whole 
part of the work which just sits so strongly i think as a piece of writing just just fell into place so literally and perfectly as as mm-hmm. film Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, a huge fan of the books for so long, the radio series, we've talked about this. But I caught Fellowship just a few days after it first hit theaters. So what was that, late December, I want to say, 2001. And Brian, to me, it felt like a quasi-religious experience. And that's because the Lord of the Rings books were my favorite books of all time growing up. You know, I'm not alone there. In 1999, I was reading that Amazon.com readers, Amazon was very different back then, but the readers of that site, purchasers at that site, they selected the three-volume work as the best book of the millennium. So it had already come with high plaudits. But again, my building anticipation for this movie, it was so thoroughly rewarded sitting in that theater, watching it for the first time. I was weaned on Middle-earth first by, I guess you could say, the Ralph Bashke animated version of the story from 1978. Mm-hmm. I guess that was followed by a watch of the, there was a Return of the King TV cartoon movie in 1980. I don't know if that had made it to the UK, but oh, yes. it was a Rankin-Bass uh, cartoon movie. And then there were umpteen listens to the top-notch BBC radio adaptation, which, of course, you played such a huge part in. So in 2001, to see Tolkien's work so thoroughly and uniquely realized in a live-action feature film that, you know, did justice to the original text absolutely bowled me over. And I remember remember having the thought that, yeah, this is the new Star Wars. This is the new benchmark against which fantasy and adventure films will be measured— you know, I immediately recognized Fellowship for the immense technical achievement that it was and appreciated how Peter Jackson and his team were able to condense this sprawling main tale so effectively make it so, you know, cinematically exciting because to transform it cinematically, that's a huge challenge, right? And I had built up many pictures in my mind of what Frodo and Aragorn and Gollum and many of these characters should look like. So admittedly, Brian, it took a couple of sits with Fellowship for me to accept some of the faces, some of the voices and the designs. But what an immense grand slam slugged out of the park by Peter Jackson and his team, creating this thoroughly entertaining live action film from what was previously deemed an unfilmable text, right? Absolutely. Our podcast's anniversary recently celebrated the 20th anniversary of another film from 2001, Mulholland Drive. And I stated in that episode that that was my favorite film of the last two decades. Well, upon further reflection, I need to clarify that statement. Mulholland Drive, in my opinion, is the greatest film so far of the 21st century. But my personal favorite film has to be Fellowship of the Ring. It never fails to completely enthrall me, to seize my imagination. The visuals are heart-stirring. The cinematic storytelling is masterful. The acting is leagues better than your typical mega blockbuster genre film. I adore all three movies, particularly Return of the King, but my pick for the finest of the trilogy is this first installment for the reasons we were talking about and more. So absolutely simpatico with you there. I I think one of the things was that the film set down a very particular benchmark, which was in the look of the film. Yes. And I've always said that one of the strokes of genius of, of Peter Jackson was the way in which he brought together around him people who shared his passion for the story. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the fact that, that Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens, who wrote the script with him, they had themselves had a passion for the book. But also the fact that Jackson brought in to the fold, as it were, everybody who could be of the most possible help to him. You know, he he 
he brought in John Howe and Alan Lee, who were already established in the yeah. the world of Tolkien as being two of the finest visualizers of Tolkien's world. That's right. Uh, and their imprint and stamped on that film is huge, of course, in the no question inspirational uh, stage of the film. And then the fact that Richard Taylor and his amazing cohorts then made that visually three-dimensionally real uh actually brought john and alan's drawings into into a reality is fantastic and fascinating the fact that they really embrace the fans as well i mean i remember watching the you know the ringer uh, the the one ring.net spies uh out trying to get their their images you know climbing over walls <laughs> and barbed wire and between boarded up panels to try and find out what was going on and the, you know the most original initially of course the security people were all over it and then jackson absolutely saw that this was why put why you know why alienate these people by by forcing them to be spies why not bring them in and share with them because what they will do through their huge enthusiasm is spread the word. They will that's right. Your disciples, your apostles, spread the gospel, evangelize mm -hmm. for you, and they did. And you know that that embracing the those people from the One Ring and all the other enthusiasts and and getting them in and giving them the best story and the best pictures and the best opportunities. That as a piece of free, free marketing and publicity was, was a stroke of genius, but it also brought people online. So there was a huge sense to my mind of a great deal of people being committed to this project even before they ever saw it. Yes. And this is no small point, Brian. I mean, you hit on it. Why is this not just the fellowship, but the entire trilogy? Why is it so successful? Why Why did it turn out with such quality? The passion, yeah. the commitment, the history, the experience of these Tolkien zealots, these uh, Middle Earth enthusiasts who Jackson brought aboard. And, yep. you know, it speaks to why he entrusted you, for example, because he knew. It was, I think, two things. One, treating those zealots, as you call them, treating them seriously, embracing their passion, and absolutely not mocking them. Right. You know, obviously, the film touched many other people who weren't in that category. And that's one of its great strengths, of course, too, that it did take the book to a huge number of people who had never read it, had been put off by it or thought it was quirky or them. You know, no question. it made it mainstream in a way that it, it hadn't been previously. And that that's not to be undersold either. Let's get into this, Brian. Why is the Fellowship of the Ring film, why is it worth celebrating 20 years later? Why does it still matter? How has it stood the test of time? On every single level, really. I think the extraordinary use of scenery, the locations in New Zealand, we, we shouldn't forget a huge part in the success of this film, uh, because for a country which was at the time probably less known of all the countries around because it's farthest away to the average tourist suddenly people saw extraordinary vistas and landscapes which were beautiful and terrifying and extraordinary and outlandish you know in a way that they'd never conceived and oh look they look just like what we thought middle earth would look like incredible yes i think the fact that peter had them amongst his team people with different talents there's a guy called jamie selkirk who was one of the partners in what workshop uh, and who was the 
editor on the on the first films. He was a hugely experienced editor. I would hazard to say that Peter wasn't at that point. So he had a, around him people with great strengths. He had in Barry Osborne and Mark Odesky of New Line Cinema, uh, people who were two, provided two huge things, encouragement, enthusiasm, but also at the same time were able to put on the brake for when Pete got a bit uh, excessive or a bit out of control, they were able to manoeuvre him back into line again. That's important. So he has, you know, all these kind of support networks and, and particularly Weta Workshop. And it was an extraordinary group of people who just put together these amazing visualizations in a way that, you know, rivaled some of the some of the most elaborate and memorable stuff that's been made in in the Hollywood studios. Uh, this this you know was up there with that with them, and and particularly I'd say the miniature models, those things they created, the weaponry, uh, you know, yeah. the helmets, the swords, all of that mm -hmm. stuff, which was done not just done lovingly and, and with great care, but but also with great beauty and and bringing in, again, huge, hugely talented craftspeople who could do it. You know, people who were sword makers, people who were bow makers, you know, all of those people, but the talent that was brought in was extraordinary. Glass makers, people who made carpets, people who made, uh, created special china and pottery for, for bag end or more refined glassware for Rivendell, all of those talents, you know, the cumulative sum of that, much of which is just almost just on the margins of your peripheral vision when you're watching the film are what make this film such an, an extraordinary gem. Yeah, absolutely. If I could riff on that. Yeah, I believe it's worth celebrating because even though special effects have significantly improved over the last 20 years, we can agree. And despite the fact that we've been bombarded as viewers with a glut of films of the fantastical kind over that span, the Fellowship of the Ring and, of course, the movie trilogy as a whole, it stands as the piece de resistance, the magnum opus in this fantasy adventure subgenre. If I were to kind of categorize this as a subgenre of fantasy adventure, I hold firm, Brian, that it's better than any other fantasy adventure film released in the 21st century. And that includes any of the new Star Wars episodes, any of the Harry Potter pictures, any of those DC or Marvel movies. Uh, any of the Narnia features, or for that matter, Hobbit adaptations. Fans and critics, yeah, they can debate which of the Three Rings films is best, of course, but for my money, I'll take Fellowship to rule them all, so to speak. <laughs> I'd even go so far as to say that the Rings trilogy, Brian, is the greatest film trilogy of any genre. So hear me out here. I know this sounds hubristic, but of the first three Star Wars movies, you know, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, the first two are masterpieces. The third, you know, it's a little problematic to me. The three Godfather films, the first two films are unimpeachable masterworks. The third installment has some weaker moments. You think of, let's say, the Man With No Name Dollars trilogy with Clint Eastwood. One chapter is a masterpiece. The other two are very, very good. Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. I don't know if you've seen his films Before Sunrise, Before Midnight, Before Sunset. Marvelous achievement in uh, intimate filmmaking filled with wonderful surprises, but the scope, the stakes involved were much smaller by comparison. 
Now, mind you, I said greatest film trilogy, which means a three-film series that doesn't have fewer or more chapters. That doesn't necessarily mean I believe that Rings is the greatest series or greatest franchise ever, because there's a lot of possible contenders for that crown. But again, if you're just judging on a trilogy of three films self-contained. It's the best, in my opinion. And it stood the test of time because Fellowship doesn't look like a soulless tentpole production designed to pad the pocketbooks and portfolios of its creators and its bankrollers. The extreme attention to detail and respect for the epic nature of this story, which you laid out, is clearly evident in every frame. You know, cases in point. It's amazing to think that the production team, I was reading some of the facts about it, right, consisted of over 2,400 people. You had 26,000 extras participating in the trilogy, more than, uh, what did I read, 40 seamstresses fashioning 19,000 costumes for the three movies. You hear that the principal actors were engaged in weeks-long training for, for things like sword fighting, horseback riding, boating, even training on Tolkien speak, how to speak, you know, Elvish or whatever. Uh, Minas Tirith was the biggest set ever built in the Southern Hemisphere. The facts go on and on. It's incredible. And you could tell that Jackson and his collaborators went to extreme lengths to build this world. They relied heavily on old school effects and techniques wherever possible. But they did, of course, use CGI as one of the many tools in their arsenal alongside tricks like, you mentioned, you know, bigotures, miniatures, forced perspective, matte paintings. So old school and new school. So many fantasy films today, Brian, they're preoccupied with perfect visuals that heavily accentuate snazzy but overblown computer graphics, right? And discerning viewers, they can quickly grow tired of that thing, numb to it after a while. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I certainly have. And the Fellowship of the Ring never forgets that its most valuable components are the characters and the conflicts motivating them. The filmmakers are to be commended for prioritizing personalities and story over eye candy, although they don't shirk their duties in that department either. This is a very visually impressive movie, of course. The movie is replete with show-stopping creatures, awe-inspiring battle sequences. You've got jaw-dropping visuals that require plenty of digital tools to come to life. And while a few examples of the CG may appear, let's say a little dated, a little creaky 20 years later, the vast majority, I think, hold up very well and fail to break the spell of suspended disbelief cast on the audience. So kudos to the filmmakers there as well. And lastly, I just want to say this. Fellowship, it also matters because the acting is a cut above what you'd probably expect from a fantastical film featuring, let's face it, wizards, elves, dwarves, trolls, goblin-like creatures, other figures that some contingent of the audience may not take seriously because of the trappings involved with this, you know, domain of geekdom, if you will, the Dungeons and Dragons types uh, who are, you know, kind of relegated by other types of society as, yeah, that's all just, you know, geekdom stuff. The characters are well cast, all the more impressive considering that most of these actors were unknown or at least underappreciated at the time. So that's no small point. And remember that this film announced the arrival of actors and thespians we cherish more dearly today. You think of Ian McKellen, Viggo Mortensen, Elijah Wood, Kate Blanchett, Orlando Bloom, on and on and on. Even smaller players like Andy Serkis, nobody knew his name before this movie. So what a stroke of brilliance just in the casting alone.
Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, I should add that the reason Ian Holm got to play Bilbo Baggins was because he had played Frodo in the radio version. Of course, uh, yes. Years earlier. And of course, you know, Peter's obsession to bring in all those people he admired, you know, people like uh, uh, Christopher Lee and Brad Dourif and so on. Um, I sure. think there's one one element which you've, I mean, your catalogue of, of what you just said uh, stands as being absolutely the truth. But uh, I think there's an added element to it, which sets yes. apart from other trilogies or series of films, which is the fact that, of course, this book was never, ever intended to be a trilogy. You know, this mm. book was a book, a one-volume book. And Tolkien himself was extremely upset uh, by the fact that the publishers insisted on carving it up into three chunks. Um, but, mm -hmm. but you know, it was published post-war when paper was uh, at a premium and was difficult to get hold of. Uh, and so they said, no, we can only do it in, in, in chunks. And it, indeed, the, the, the decision to name the second volume, The Two Towers, was was one of many things that, that Tolkien agonised over. But so I think there was a sense that when you get to the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, as indeed you did, I remember vividly watching the Ralph Bakshi film uh, when it first came out. And at the end of it, when probably John Houseman's voice or somebody's came in and said, this is the only the end of the first part right. of the <laughs> You know, and I thought, oh, my God, there's more to come. Well, unfortunately, there wasn't, because what we got was the, and I, I grew up watching those old Rankin Bass animated uh, Christmas pictures, movies, you know, which were fine. But what we got with the, the Return of the King was um, not a patch on what Bakshi had achieved, actually. But right. I, I, so I think it's because it's one whole creative entity that mm -hmm. that um, there is it's, it's got its own motor its own motor driving it through uh, and although of course it had to have its own climax uh, each of the each of the episodes the, there is absolutely a sense that that not we may write another story or give you another story from this place but actually this is just the first part of this story. And, and the other thing for me that I found fascinating was the fact that I, and I'm sure other people too, were able to uh, accept the some of the changes and alterations that were made because they mm -hmm. felt in, in the right kind of a moment. You know, when Frodo is wounded on Weathertop uh, and he's been, you know, he's been cut by a, a, a mogul sword, so he is... He is in great danger and he's failing fast and they're rushing to get to the, the Ford of Iceland and get to Rivendell. Uh, in that moment, in the book, of course... It's Glorfindel, it's isn't Glorfindel it? It's Glorfindel who comes to right. rescue. And here they made it into Arwen, which, you know, right. when I first heard that, I thought, what? But then suddenly it made sense uh, on lots of levels because Arwen... In the, in the book is a, a very shadowy figure, a figure that we don't really know or understand or have this, you know, the, the, a real understanding of in any sense. And uh, I, I remember when I was doing the dramatization, I, I sat, I was aghast when I thought, well, where did she speak first? And it's, it's somewhere towards in the, towards the return of the king, end of the return of the yeah, king. That's right. She doesn't actually mm -hmm. speak in Rivendell when they first arrived there. So to make her such a, a key character early on, uh, I think was fantastic. I had reservations about a few other things. I think the the bedroom scene with with Aragorn uh, and uh, uh, Arwen was 
probably just a, a moment too far for me, but you know, hmm. it was there and it was gone. So we move right. on. Well, we're token purists and we uh, admire the uh, purity of the original texts, of course. So there's going to be some disconnects, some reservations. Yeah, always, uh, always. Yeah, always. But, but again, just to think about if you are tasked with adapting this for the big screen, you are going to have to make some serious compromises, not only for brevity and length and things of that nature, but you have to condense some characters. You have to eliminate others. You yes. know, Tom Bombadil is going to have to go. Arwen's going to have to get beefed up. You need a stronger female contingent uh, in this story and so forth. So I understand those things and I forgive them. Absolutely. Uh, it's not a problem for me at all. And and that speaks to some really good decisions from the filmmakers. Like uh, there wasn't anything in any of the three films that just stopped me dead in the tracks. I said, no, I can't. I cannot accept this. Uh, really, nothing. It's just small, you know, minor things that, yeah, I thought about a little bit and let them go. Because really, how do you envision this for, uh, you know, cinematic purposes? It's very, very challenging. And, and the more I see Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, the more I watch the trilogy, the more I am just bowled over by how well they did in this, this particular task. I, I agree. I think there are a few moments where Pete's a uh, very quirky sense of of humor, which we should have known was was there from uh, brain dead, mm-hmm. bad taste, and so on. Uh, just get the <laughs> upper hand. Uh, sure, and, sure. And shows in the dialogue with some lines like, uh, you know, Gimli to to Legolas put an arrow in his gob on the walls of uh, of Helm's Deep. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there are there are dialogue moments where you go, oh, yeah, nobody tosses a dwarf, <laughs> things like that. Dwarf. Right, right, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, it's important to have a little levity in there. Uh, you know, you uh, can't have everything other, be ponderous. With the other, with the other problem which in fact Tolkien is low on laughs actually that's uh, true very very low on laughs right uh, and um you needed you know some byplay so I knew no why it was there but there were there were moments where uh, there were little uh, uh, lacks of subtlety which uh, uh I, well Tol- Tolkien would have certainly been horrified by right now it's interesting to think if Tolkien had lived longer and and you know there had been negotiations for a big screen adaptation what he would have allowed. It, it It's a rhetorical question. We, we don't have time to get uh, into it. But again, cool. maybe we're fortunate in the sense that, uh, you know, the author was removed from his work by this point, And, you know, we were able to see uh, someone else's vision of that. And to be fair, he himself, when he talked about the creation of Middle Earth, uh, he talked about it in, in terms in his writing in um, on fairy stories. He talked about this idea of, the, of creating something which then to which other people then bring their arts and their talents uh, to and carry mm-hmm. on creating, you know, like the Arthurian legend. I mean, he saw this as being his kind of new mythology for, for mm-hmm. England. And and he was keenly aware, of course, that the mythology of Arthur, you know, is not just what, what you have in the early versions, but it's also what what's accrued to it through every other, other version, every illustrator who's tackled it, um, you know, from the... Mallory through to T.H. White and beyond. Sure. Uh, and, and so I think he understood that when you create something, and he did understand it because he had such a, uh, a brilliant grasp of mythology and, and legend, that no, no legend is, is ever static. They all grow and develop and retold and rebranded and, you know, that's important, reborn into a new shape. And, and I, I think he would have, if he'd have 
been able to, I think he would have come to the realize that that was what was happening. And of course, yeah, you hope so. My, my response to anybody who doesn't like it is to say, well, the book's still there. You know, the films haven't taken the book away. Right. If you, you know, you, if you're upset by something in 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 the in the Lord of the, Jackson's Lord of the Rings, well, just go back and read the book again instead. You know, you don't. It hasn't expunged the book. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we really need to get into this next question here because it's at the heart of what we are exploring in this episode. Uh, we always talk about influences, inspirations, things like that. So um, if you bear with me, I'm going to lay out uh, kind of some points here and then I want to hear your take on it. But I, I'm going to ask you, in what ways was this film influential on cinema and popular culture? And boy, it's a it's a big answer here because there's many, many answers possible. And you think about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, including Fellowship, how it made audiences more accepting of live action fantasy films featuring magic and wizards and mythological creatures like elves, trolls, and dragons, which were previously not taken as seriously by critics and moviegoers alike. You think about prior to Fellowship, except for a handful of fantasy adjacent pictures, like, okay, maybe The Wizard of Oz is in that category, Star Wars movies. A few examples here and there. Fantasy was a genre that didn't get as much attention or respect as, say, you know, sci-fi or superhero films. But in the wake of the Rings trilogy, we saw plenty of imitators and close cousins. Game of Thrones comes to mind. Wheel of Time, Shadow and Bone, uh, Clash of the Titans, those movies, Wrath of the Titans, The Golden Compass, the Percy Jackson films. Beowulf, uh, King Arthur, the list goes on and on and on. And today, The Fellowship of the Ring, it ranks as the fourth most popular film ever on IMDb based on IMDb rating. It's also very highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and so forth. But, And it's in the, uh, the second edition of the AFI Top 100 uh, films list. I think it comes in at number 50. It's the only of the three films that ranks in the AFI list. And you remember too, Brian, that this trilogy proved that fantasy films could capture the attention of cinema elites. Fellowship all by itself, it earned 13 Academy Award nominations, which at that time was a record for a genre film, winning for Best Cinematography, Original Score, Makeup, and Visual Effects, right? Among all the awards across the world for which it was nominated, the trilogy received 475 awards, I read, out of 800 nominations, earning The Lord of the Rings the title of the most awarded film series in movie history. So if you if you count worldwide awards, it's the tops. Fellowship scores, in fact, a 92% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I, I referenced a moment ago. And it was also officially included in the National Film Registry only two decades after its theatrical debut. So they kind of fast-tracked it to the uh, National Film Registry. And we could certainly talk about how Fellowship raised the bar in the visual effects department. Uh, Weta Digital, responsible for the uh, CGI, they created what was called Massive. And I guess that stands for Multiple Agent Simulation System in Virtual Environment. This was a cutting-edge computer animation and artificial intelligence software employed in Fellowship and the subsequent two movies. And what did it do? Well, it created crowd-related visual imagery, making sequences like the Second Age War against Sauron and the Battle of Helm's Deep possible and realistic. So that was no small feat there. 
You think about how Weta also famously used special motion capture technology to bring characters like Gollum to life. Now, that was more in the second movie because we just get a hint of Gollum in Fellowship. But still, the creation of that character and the possibilities of motion capture were so on display there. And those digital tools have since been used in plenty of big-name flicks from Jackson's 2005 King Kong to 300 to WALL-E to the Avengers Endgame, etc., and you touched on this earlier, the way that the trilogy was authorized by New Line Cinema. What did it do? Well, it demonstrated that committing to several movies in a series at the same time was the right decision. In other words, they didn't wait to greenlight the two towers until after the Fellowship of the Ring proved to be a big box office hit, right? They gave Jackson the go-ahead to film all three movies at the same time, which hadn't really been done in Hollywood up to that point. This is one of the greatest gambles and highest risks ever taken by a studio, and it paid off because it certainly could have sunk New Line. And nowadays, studios are more eager to follow suit on approving multi-film projects and bestowing them with budgets in the hundreds of millions, whether it be Disney or Amazon Studios. The Fellowship filmmakers, Brian, they also weren't afraid to end with an unresolved conclusion as opposed to you know, a self-contained story with an upbeat denouement. The success of Fellowship showed that if you make a quality fantasy adventure movie and you get the audience fully vested in the story and the characters, they're going to come back in droves for successive chapters. And this trilogy, particularly Fellowship, it also made extended editions cool, right? Even though they expanded an already elongated runtime. The Fellowship of the Ring extended edition clocks in, I was reading at what, uh, 208 minutes versus 178 minutes for the theatrical version. But me, like most fans, prefer the longer cut. It's more token. It's more Middle Earth. It's great. And likewise, the home video releases of Fellowship and the trilogy. They set the standard for box sets, offering up to, you know, what, 26 hours of extra footage and bonus features in the three-movie package. I remember getting my hands on that, tearing off the shrink wrap and zealously, you know, inserting it in the DVD player and just couldn't wait to consume all that extra content. It was amazing. And you think about all the extended cuts and loaded box sets we've seen over the past 20 years. I know physical media is going away. They still put them out. But yeah, this is thanks in large part to the Rings films and that trend they set with extended editions and deluxe box sets. Uh, absolutely. And and all those extras, and God knows I appeared in quite a lot of them, and, and those I didn't appear in, I was quite often the person who was unseen asking the questions, certainly of all the British actors. Um, yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. I think what the way I look at it, it everything you've said, you, you've summed it up. But what I would add, I think, is the Fellowship of the Ring and the subsequent two films were an adultification of the fantasy film. You know, I think of fantasy films prior to that as falling into various kind of genres. You know, the fantasy island type films, the the great, and I'm a a huge admirer of Ray Harryhausen, as of course was Peter Jackson. Um, You know, the the Ray Harryhausen films uh, or the Disney uh, fantasy films, uh, much of which were seemed to be necessarily aimed at, a, let's say, not a, just a children's audience, but a children and parents audience. What Jackson did, and the, t- the whole the whole package, everybody involved, from New Line down to the, the person who made, you know, the smallest pot or pan that appeared on set, and what they did was treat the whole thing as though it was an absolutely adult film. There was no sense that this was a movie 
for the tinies. And, and I know of a lot of people who went thinking, oh, my God, this is a kid's movie, uh, and came out stunned and absolutely won over to the fact that this was a fantasy film. We're not talking about a labyrinth or a dark crystal or a time bandit. You know, we're, we're talking about something which has all those fantastical uh, fantasy elements in it, but are not, but, but are clearly of a more... Uh, mature stature, a stature which doesn't compromise, which doesn't uh, pull its punches, which is not aiming at the lowest possible common denominator. Well, that's unfair, but not aiming at the lowest possible age group sure. that you could be wanting to appeal to. And I think that 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 decision, plus, as you say, Peter's own totally obsessive, uh, I, I must keep everything. You know, I mean, I've, I've been watching, I've only got through the first nine hours of it no I, I'm, I'm exaggerating but the first two and a half hours or whatever it is the the Beatles trilogy which he's made from the the uh, get back uh, footage this this is a man who relishes everything being in depth I mean it's part of his real passion I mean when I, I remember when I first went into his production offices and walked up the stairs and you know there are posters on the stairs but we're not talking about you know reprint posters we're talking about an original poster of King Kong an original poster of Frankenstein this is a man who came with this enormous back knowledge back history of uh, of appreciation and fandom both too I mean both a filmic understanding I mean an understanding of what the great beauty of film is you know what makes the photography in Frankenstein or Citizen Kane so astonishing uh, and also the fantastical elements of, of the storytelling and he he had those and held those in in a kind of uh, in a balance which is what's mm -hmm. so remarkable and and his his devotion to the idea that everything is worth preserving in a way it also chimes actually with the whole of the Tolkien enthusiasm you True. know there are, there are there are fans of Tolkien who don't content themselves with reading the, the the three volumes of the Lord of the Rings they they want to read the Silmarillion the unfinished tales and all those mm -hmm. 12 volumes of of Middle-earth history that Christopher Tolkien, the, the professor's son, uh, put together following uh, his death uh, because they like, you know, the, the, the Jackson extras and bonus discs. They want to be part of everything. They want to know everything about how it was made and, and the depth of it and yes. the things that they didn't know, the filling in the blanks. He captured, I think, uh, a mood, and there are plenty of other films about whom, uh, as you know, uh, cineasts feel as passionate that we want to know all about you know how a film was made I mean they're not alone in that sense but I think in a sense they have made way for or encourage people to say well let's have all the stuff that we can find about you know King Kong um, you know and it's what it's why somebody can compose an ending for uh, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony it's it's why somebody can write a new uh, suite for um, the host planet suite because there was a planet which wasn't there when he wrote it um, <laughs> right. you know, it, it, we want we want to have the complete thing those desires within us for completion and and fulfillment of something about which we feel passionate uh, is something which jackson made okay and grown up and not a kid's thing you know you're not being a nerdy a nerdy fan that you just want to know all the ins and outs it's something that is actually 
about understanding the creativity of something that's been created that you love and you care about. So, you know, he's he's done that and all the other things which you outlined, which without any question at all. And can I just say a word for uh, Howard Shaw? Because Howard Shaw's music, he's not the person you would have reached out to necessarily to have wrote, written. Yeah, you think of maybe a John Williams or someone you, like John that. Williams, right? John Williams, John Barry, mm -hmm. you know, those right. kind of people. But he, he went to somebody who treated what he created as something which itself was totally authentic and amazing. I mean, I, I attended several of his recording sessions. You know, he would choose instruments that were not necessarily the normal instruments that are being used. He did all his own orchestrations. But his music, you know, is now, to my mind, ranks. But I place his score alongside Max Steiner uh, or, you know, or the... Or the Corn gold or the great Hollywood composers of Bernard the Herman and so forth, sure. But but with his own unique musical take on it, you know, yes. his ability to be able to move from the rustic rural tones of of uh, the, mm -hmm. the Shire through to the huge themes that he created for the battles and the confrontations and so on. It is a masterly score. There's no question. He shared this vision and he brought to it his own individuality. And maybe that's the secret of these films, that, that what Jackson harnessed through his own passion and enthusiasm and dynamism was, the, was these individual disparate uh, passions of, of people. Yes. Where, you know, actors or craftspeople or for cameramen uh, and, and made them into something which is greater than the, the sum of the parts. No, it speaks to his brilliance, uh, which yeah. uh, was his ability to pick the right collaborators and to delegate the responsibilities appropriately and to have faith in some people who, like you mentioned, Howard Shore might not have been the first choice for, yeah. let's say, another filmmaker choosing to adapt. And, it, to, right? the, and to the studio for allowing him to do that because, mm -hmm. you know, many, many Hollywood studios, and, the, you know, the history of movies is, is littered with them, uh, many Hollywood studios would have interposed themselves in this process and said no to this or no to that, but they they were able to give Jackson the, the leeway to, yes. to, and the trust. Uh, and I'm sure because they saw that it was being delivered, but even so it was still for them, you know, they wrote a very dangerous creature as it were, uh, but they knew that it was, that he was gonna tame it uh, and that they could just ride along and it, and it would work. And God's sake, well put. it worked and works still. Absolutely. No question about it. We always ask about themes, messages, or morals explored in the given movie for the month. So briefly, um, let me kick this uh, off with just, just a few thoughts, and then I want to hear what you have to say about uh, possible themes here. I'll just kind of synthesize a few common threads here. The corrupting nature of power, the fallibility and vulnerability of mortals, you could kind of point to that as a major theme. The potency of the ring, how it infects and it taints, it undermines everyone who comes in contact with it, even a humble and altruistic soul like Frodo. Time and again, we're shown how men, women, wizards, elves, dwarves, hobbits alike, they're all tempted by the allure of this seemingly insignificant trinket. So this is a huge point I think Tolkien is making here, as, as is Jackson. And even the smallest person can change the course of history, as Galadriel says, is another key point. The fact that a diminutive, relatively powerless figure like Frodo can bear the ring for so long without completely succumbing to its persuasion, it underscores a meaningful moral. 
selflessness, courage, willingness to sacrifice, empathy. These are among the most incorruptible virtues and mighty traits that an individual can possess regardless of their physical stature. It is these qualities that made the rest of the fellowship appoint and trust in Frodo as the leader of their quest and their ultimate hope for salvation from Sauron, right? They know that Frodo doesn't seek glory, rulership, or revenge. It's his humility, his decency, his compassion, and the fact that the enemy would underestimate Frodo that make this hobbit the best candidate for this impossible job. And one more theme I I targeted here, which is another quote from the film, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us which is spoken by Gandalf. So how do you parse the, that passage? Well, to me, these words remind us that life and our times in it are precious, and each of us can make a difference in this world depending on the actions we choose to take, which can be for good or evil. Frodo wishes the ring had never come to him and none of this had happened, but then Gandalf suggests that Frodo was meant to have the ring due to factors beyond his control. But what is in Frodo's control is what he chooses to do with this responsibility. Yeah, and we have to remember that on the very brink of the crack of doom, that even Frodo at that point weakens. And if it weren't for Gollum, the mission wasn't accomplished, right? Indeed. If, uh, now that I have come here, I do not choose to do what I have come to do. And that I see this as, as being actually in the broadest possible sense Uh, a spiritual story a religious work Um, and that may sound a bit extreme but you know we have to remember that Tolkien was a devout Catholic Mm -hmm. it is about all those things that you said and and primarily I think it's about about power and the abuse of power but it's also about sacrifice and there are lots of sacrifices made in the, the course of that story you know Boromir you know who who is a who is a failed hero for example uh at the moment but he nevertheless fights the orcs and and handles them to the point well does two things first of all he calls the fellowship so the fellowship by his the call of his horn they know that there is something has gone wrong uh, but also he fights off the orcs enabling frodo to escape you know the the sacrifice that that frodo makes of choosing to leave the fellowship uh, the sacrifice that Sam makes uh, of deciding to follow Frodo, even though you know Frodo doesn't want to draw his friend into it, um, there are so many sacrifices that are made throughout uh, that that uh, story. Some of them more pronounced in the book than they are in the in the film, perhaps letting go of her her deep seated love of Aragorn that Eowyn has, you know, there is, it, it is about all kinds of sacrifices. Some of the monumental, I mean, the whole thing is about a monumental balance between good and evil and how, you know, the small, as you say, can somehow tip the great and, and change fortune. But, but it's also about the, the intimate sacrifices that people choose to make. For example, you know, Arwen relinquishing her, her option to leave middle earth and go to the undying lands because of her love for aragorn all of those things are embedded into this story which make it so much more than what it appears to be and and Mm. if it's not allegory then it is at least suffuse with all of that kind of imagery 
that we are aware of, from, not just from Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs, but also from much older mythologies too. You know, the, sure. the king that the king that dies and is reborn. These these are, are, are concepts that go deep into our storytelling, our worldwide storytelling heritage, and they have their own version in every culture. And Tolkien mm -hmm. locked into them in a way which wasn't ponderous and wasn't portentous and you know wasn't heavy-handed but unlocked these really strong ideas that you meet you know simplistically in a fairy tale perhaps or you meet more dramatically in the the legend of Beowulf you know th these are things that are deeply set within our within our human nature over centuries and centuries and and this story with its modern comparatively modern take on the kind of individuals and their characteristics uh, makes it something which we can all respond to. Terrific point, Brian. This is a 20th birthday celebration. Birthdays are all about presents, except it's the fans who continue to get the gifts, I contend. So, Brian, what is the Fellowship of the Ring's greatest gift to viewers? Oh, for me, the real gift is the fact that they brought to life and gave a physical material presence to something which was for many many of us just a concept in a book it, it lived in our head uh and in our mind's eye because that's what books do that is where they live but but they were fleshed out and embodied in a way that we could actually relate to them through a different medium and you know, uh, everybody who tackles a great book, whatever that book is, you know, whether it's the Potter books or it's any, a, a work of Dickens, you know, thinking of one of the most uh, um, filmed writers in, in, in the world, uh, wh whatever person approaches it, something falls short or, or, or fails or doesn't quite deliver uh, because you're always conscious of, of watching something which is somebody's perception you know i just seen a brilliant yeah. brilliant production of of Mac, filmic production of macbeth uh and absolutely it's absolutely stunning but it, it's one person's view of macbeth and somebody else you know any any play of hamlet any play of shakespeare's you know hamlet or romeo and juliet you know whether it's baz Luhrmann's romeo and juliet or it's west side story uh either as it's originally filmed or as it's now being filmed by spielberg you know they're all telling this the, the a famous story in their own way yes the magic of what jackson films and particularly i think the fellowship of the ring gave us as a gift was visualizing it and presenting it to it to us and sharing it with us anew because freshly in the form of film but doing so in a in a way that we immediately believed that was how it how it was this was our middle earth and then, I mean, that's what I, I think I felt from the very first footage I ever saw of the film before it was ever finished, was this is the, the Middle Earth I know, and I believe in this Middle Earth, just as I believed it when I read it on the page. Uh, and that is, I think, a really rare gift. I, I think, you know, that there are movie makers who've delivered and done that, no question. But to do it in the with the scope and the style and the sweep of creativity that, that Jackson and his colleagues manage, uh, is, I think, unique. So well put. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts on that. I believe the Fellowship of the Ring's greatest gift, Brian, is that it helped make the fantasy adventure subgenre respectable and legitimate. We were talking about this earlier. Of True, course. absolutely. So I grew, up, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, 
And this was a time when, you know, these types of movies were relatively popular among my young demographic, but they weren't widely accepted by the masses or made with lasting quality, let's say. You know, as an adolescent, I enjoyed the Conan movies. Dragon Slayer was a particular favorite at the time. The Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, Heavy Metal, Clash of the Titans, Krull, Legend, and other similar fare. But I knew that most adults downgraded and dismissed this stuff. I was aware that many of these were, I guess you'd call them empty calorie entertainments without cinematic sustenance, which has kind of proven true. A lot of them just aren't works of lasting quality, let's say. These films lack the necessary budget, the believable special effects, the impressive cast, the effective filmmaking talents in many examples, and the marketing push, perhaps, to appeal beyond the teenage and the comic book crowd. But Fellowship and its follow-up chapters completely reset this template for fantasy adventure and forever changed the paradigm by raising the bar quite high. I think back to Star Wars A New Hope in 1977. Unlike that particular moment, there was a lot more clutter and competition to break through in 2001, an era when CGI was already widely accepted and film franchises like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, X-Men, Harry Potter... They dominated or they were coming into their own. There was no guarantee that Fellowship would become a game changer just because of all the publicized hype and anticipation. The kind of picture, you know, that would sell a lot of tickets, please the critics, and be fondly remembered. There were no guarantees. But of all those series and many that came after, including the Pirates of the Caribbean films, the Rings trilogy today stands as a collective work of consistent excellence in which each of its chapters is consistently first-rate throughout. The filmmakers, they don't slack off in the two towers. They don't deliver a subpar outing. Nor, for that matter, is any sequence, storyline, or subplot in Fellowship a letdown. So it's a joy to revisit this movie every few years, and the adventure is always enthralling. The tension is ever-palpable. The epic scale and vision is unfailingly breathtaking. Fellowship is and always will be my fantasy fave. So what are you currently working on that listeners should check out? Anything of note, Brian? Is there a book in the works, for example? There is a book in the works, which I can't talk about, but maybe another time. What I can mention is that there's a book being published this uh, June. It's called The Great Tales Never End, Ah. Essays in Memory of Christopher Tolkien. And Mm -hmm. uh, this is a book which was intended as as a, a book in as a gift to Christopher Tolkien by the people who were invited to contribute to it. But um, when Christopher died in, in 2020, um, obviously that all had to change. And so the, the book is now called The Great Tales Never End, Essays in Memory of Christopher Tolkien. Uh, Tom Shippey, uh, John Garth, Hammond and Skull, a number of uh, well-known critics and commentators uh, writing and Priscilla Tolkien with a very personal view of her brother. It's, I think, going to be a really interesting collection of, of essays. I have a, a, a chapter in there. It's called Down from the Door Where It Began, and it, it is about portals in Middle-earth, in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It is a fact that doors and portals and passageways and entrances uh, figure hugely in the books. Christopher Tolkien I think he's an, an amazing person in his own right because he was always working towards furthering his father's work. He was never, you know, yes. many editors get given the opportunity of having all a lot of manuscripts that haven't been published before uh, would be, you know, showy off about it. But he always 
put his father center in the work. Uh, and the, the 12 years, 13 years or whatever it was that he spent creating the, the, amazing, the amazing 12 volume history of Middle Earth was a, an extraordinary achievement. And uh, yeah, colossal. This, this book plays a small tribute to him. That's so fitting. Lovely to be part of it, which is a great honor. But I'm just finally going to say that with all the things you were saying about, you know, what it is that sets it apart. Uh, and I would just add one thing to it. It's certainly one of them is gravitas that this story has in its scope and in its intention, as Tolkien wrote it, that this is a story of great import. Uh, And it's hard for people who've never read it to understand how uh, the characters, which, you know, you could make fun of like a wizard or a little small character called a hobbit uh, and a thing like a, a small gold ring that's been forged sometime in the past but what he gives it is the gravitas of all myth and law and legend and that's why it has this totally lasting uh quality which amazingly but brilliantly jackson and his filmmakers captured and embodied on film and and i think that it it is always more than the story when people read it and read it, and I lots, know lots of people who do read it over and over again, and, and, and there are people who watch, as we know, films, the films over and over again, and I get emails from people who listen to the radio version over and over again. And the reason people do that is because they want to be in this world that is so totally real for all its fancifulness or fantasticness. It's real because it's about real people whether they're dwarves or wizards or hobbits they are real people who experience the sorrow the joy the pain the suffering the the ambition uh, all of those qualities that we know we we experience or other people we know experience uh, and they experience them in a world where we as readers and, and watchers of the film explore those deep set emotions in a visual world in the case of the films that we can comfortably and safely explore what those feelings really mean what those powers and pressures represent to us and still come out of it safe and secure and maybe maybe a little bit changed for the better so true and so eloquently articulated by you i'm so glad you crystallized this thought here at the very end because it's at the heart of what it really means to enjoy the middle earth mythology the lord of the rings books and the films and the Fellowship of the Ring in particular, which we are celebrating this month, the 20th anniversary. So it was such a pleasure to talk to you, Brian. You were the perfect guest for this installment, and I'm just thrilled that you said yes. Thank you again so much for appearing on Cineversary. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy. I've loved talking with you, Eric, and it's been great. Thank you. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> so great to talk Token and Jaw Jackson with an expert fully immersed in this world of myth and movie making. I am indebted to Brian Sibley for being so generous with his time and expertise in agreeing to be our co-pilot this month. Thank you, Brian. Time now for Standing Ovations. This is where we give a shout out to a film, TV show, website, podcast, book, or other work that we think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you. For January, I want to call attention to a brand new Netflix series I discovered called Voir which consists of brief video essays explaining how a particular movie or film trend has impacted the lives of the writers of these essays, who also personally narrate each episode. 
So the kickoff installment covers the summer of 1975 and how Jaws made a memorable impact upon narrator Sasha Stone, at the time a teenage girl struggling to cope in an abusive household. Other essays cover the controversial film Lady Vengeance and how narrator Tony Zhao came to rethink the topic of revenge and vigilantism in cinema. Lawrence of Arabia and the concept of an unlikely protagonist is examined by narrator Drew McWeeny. Interracial politics and buddy films go under the microscope in Walter Chaw's essay on 48 Hours. There's a video essay about how beauty in animated films has been represented over the ages. And the final episode explores the distinct differences between movies and TV programs and how the latter has caught up to the former in quality in the 21st century. This is a series well worth your time, one that inspires you to think outside the box and ruminate on different films and entertainment trends in ways you never thought of before. It's really, really well done and executive produced by David Fincher and David Pryor. Give it a go and see what you think. As a quick standing ovations addendum, I wanted to briefly pay tribute to the recent passing of two artists in the movie medium who we will miss, the groundbreaking actor Sidney Poitier and the filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. Sidney's crucial importance in cinema history as a barrier-breaking and supremely talented black actor cannot be overstated, and Peter's work as a director, author, and film scholar was exemplary, particularly his passion for advancing the discourse of film discussion and interviewing all-time legends like Orson Welles, John Ford, and Howard Hawks. Two years ago, we had asked Peter to appear on Cineversary, and he said yes, but unfortunately he was contractually obligated at that time to only appear on TCM's podcast, so he had to back out. I wish we had the opportunity to talk with him back then, but it just wasn't meant to be. Sidney and Peter, rest in peace and know that your legacies in film history are assured. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Uh-huh. Looking ahead to February, we're going to head back to 1942 to commemorate the genius of director Ernst Lubitsch and comedian Jack Benny as we honor the 80th birthday of one of the great comedies of the classic Hollywood era, To Be or Not to Be. Make your plans to join us next month. Until then... As ever, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because, as I say in every installment, they're not getting older, they're getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen. (laughs) ¶¶